KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Shasta County, California, north of San Francisco, is a pretty place, but right-wing extremists have taken over the Board of Supervisors there. They've driven out public health workers and pushed to make the county what they call a Second Amendment sanctuary. And they're dubbing it a blueprint for the rest of the country. The nation's Sasha Abramsky will report. Also, the epic story of black migration out of the South in the 20th century. Isabel Wilkerson tells that story in The Warmth of Other Suns, her award-winning book. But first, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, it seems like some Democrats have a hard time naming good things Biden has done as president. We have talked here about his achievements. We called them historic last week. We talked about infrastructure, economic recovery from the pandemic, investment in high tech, investment in climate. How come other people have trouble remembering that? Is is it Biden's fault? Well, to begin with, we need higher ratings for this show. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that would immediately solve the Some problem. But, but the problem, problem, I think, is, is twofold. One, uh, which can be laid at Biden's door up to a point, is that he, he's not really a, a very compelling speaker and therefore not a very compelling salesperson. He can do a very good job closing a deal in Congress. But uh, I defy anyone to name a, a single Joe Biden speech. And this isn't just a function of age. Going back to, you know, his initial year in the Senate in 1973, 50 years ago, that actually, you know, changed people's minds or even made them pay close attention to a particular issue, except, you know, like when he was chairing the Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas hearings or something like that. Uh, unforgettable. Unforgettable. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, there were some memorable things that he lost, those we can remember. Student loans, paid family leave, free community college. People remember that he wanted those things and then he couldn't get them through Congress. Well, then, see, there's a, there's a fundamental difference, I think, uh, between democratic economic initiatives, some democratic economic initiatives, and then other democratic economic initiatives. The ones that he was able to get enacted basically set in motion the construction of factories. They will lead to uh, improvements of infrastructure, that sort of thing. They will shorten supply chains. All of those are a little bit down the line, though, in terms of practical effect, and the practical effect will be significant. But it doesn't hit people individually like student loan debt forgiveness would or uh, putting back the uh, child tax credit, or uh, uh, you know, creating uh, public support for childcare, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff people remember. You know, when, when Franklin Roosevelt was president, he had a, a, a whole separate uh, entity set up, a, a public works administration, to build these massive projects like uh, Hoover Dam and the Triborough Bridge and what have you. But after he set them up, he also took some money from them and put them uh, put that money immediately into job creation now programs, uh, WPA, 
uh, which didn't take a lot of time to gear up. Uh, They were uh, paving roads and uh, runways and uh, making parks, that sort of thing, which, you know, they could they ended up employing uh, millions of out of work people right away. And that Social Security, you know, that's what people knew that Roosevelt had done. Biden's misfortune is that his equivalent of the WPA and Social Security, et cetera, was everything in the Build Back Better bill, which did not get enacted. And what he did get through was the equivalent of the Triborough Bridge. It's great, mm-hmm. but it's going to take a long time. And what people therefore are aware of is not really the sort of thing that Biden got passed. So that's, you know, he's both something of a culprit for his inability to sell stuff, but, you know, even. Roosevelt didn't really run on re-election on, you know, the the bridge that will be completed, uh, you know, at the end of the decade. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. Here in Los Angeles, members of the Screen Actors Guild have voted to strike if they can't reach a deal with studios over a new contract by the end of June. This is part of the deepening labor struggle in, across uh, Hollywood and in New York. The vote was approved by a 98% margin. And of course, this gives the union more leverage in negotiations with the studios. The writers, meanwhile, are in the sixth week of their strike. There are 11,500 members of the Writers Guild, but there are 160,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild. So if the actors strike, production is really uh, crippled. The last time actors went on strike was in 2000, and it looks like they're going to be doing it again in July. Yeah, actors like the directors who did just get a contract, if they strike, that immediately shuts down production because you can't shoot anything that uses real people as opposed to AI or what have you without uh, directors and actors. Uh, The writers suffer from the fact that the studios uh, are, are sitting on scripts that are already done and so they can be produced, but they can't if the actors walk. More news about the class struggle in Southern California. 12,000 dock workers disrupted cargo activity Friday at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach after contract talks uh, deteriorated in recent days. These are members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They also shut down operations in Oakland, Seattle, and Tacoma. Uh, More than 22,000 union dock workers Uh, on the West Coast have been working without a contract since July 1st, 2022. That's a year ago. Yeah. And there's a lot, lot more people. They say 175,000 workers in Southern California are employed either uh, in the harbor or in related businesses. And the freight that they move, we've talked about it here, is said to be $469 billion a year. The uh, ILWU president, Willie Adams, on Friday said, we aren't going to settle for an economic package that doesn't recognize the heroic efforts and personal sacrifices of the ILWU workforce during the pandemic that lifted the shipping industry to record profits. There was an 11-day lockout by the employers in 2002 that was ended by President George H.W. Bush, and 
This week, uh, groups representing major retailers like Walmart, Target, and Amazon urged President Biden to do what President Bush had done, intervene in the West Coast port labor negotiations to make sure there is not a strike. They're worried about the back-to-school business and then the Christmas holiday business. We're told that Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue is meeting with both parties. Let us recall the storied history of longshore workers on the West Coast. Yes, well, this is historically a radical union. It emerged out of the 1934 general strike in San Francisco. Its founding uh, president was Harry Bridges, a militant leftist uh, who was really quite brilliant at uh, uh, empowering his workforce. And uh, as they empowered themselves, and he he guided it guided it strategically and in a very colorful rhetorical way as well. Uh, you know, this is one of the very few unions that has a relatively small number of members, only twenty two thousand, as you said, in total, but that can affect the whole national economy because most of the imports from Asia and thanks to our offshoring corporate uh, sector, uh, you know, there's a hell of a lot of imports from Asia. Most of the imports come through West Coast ports, in particular, the port of LA Long Beach. And I gather that what historically in recent years has been uh, what people thought was the most contentious issue, which was the level of increased automation that uh, would emerge from the contract. I gather that has largely been settled. And uh, they're now, uh, you know, at the loggerheads on dollars and cents. And the union is certainly right that the shipping companies made a fortune uh, because of the uh, pandemic and the supply chain being so fraught. They upped their rates tremendously. And uh, the Longshore uh, Union is aware of that and says, OK, we, we you know, you made a fortune we had to show up in the midst of the pandemic. So uh, come on, guys, give us uh, give us our, our, our just due. Now, Biden did intervene in the railroad uh, strike negotiations. You think he'll do it in the port in the ports, too? I should point out that, by the way, since those uh, since he intervened, a number of the rail unions have won what was the sticking point in that, which which was paid sick days. Last week, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, which was, I think, the most militant of the unions, uh, you know, finally got that out of the uh, rail companies. It's not an easy choice for Biden because uh, I, I think his sympathies are with the longshore workers. There's a political logic to backing the longshore workers, uh, but because they are such uh, an indispensable part of uh, so many of our supply chains, uh, you know, it, it is something he has to think about. Let's put it that way. Elsewhere in the class struggle in Los Angeles, uh, 80 workers protested outside Dodger Stadium on Saturday, noting that hundreds of Dodger Stadium game day workers could go on strike as early as next month if the Dodgers don't meet the, the uh, contract demands by the end of June. We're talking here about ushers, groundskeepers, security officers, uh, stadium food service workers. There's about 500 of them. They're part of the SEIW, USWW, United Services <laughs> Workers West. Yes, part uh, of SEIU. 
And uh, they're asking for a wage, wage increase of 43% over five years. Dodger Stadium uh, game day workers have never gone on strike. So this would be a first and a very dramatic one. Well, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, the ticket takers, the security guy, uh, guards and the folks who run up and down aisles uh, with peanuts and, uh, and, and such. Uh, not the ones who work at the various food stands throughout the uh, throughout the stadium. Uh, and this is just reflective of uh, the climate of the times in which workers are seeing huge profits. I mean, the Dodgers have always been, you know, one of the two or three foremost money makers in American sports and uh, currently owned by an investment group headed by a billionaire. And I think the workers figure it's a good time to uh, get a little more money for running up and down uh, the aisle, <laughs> selling and tossing bags of peanuts. On the other side of the class divide, we've seen a victory for employers at the Supreme Court, which ruled last Thursday that a union could be held financially liable for money employers lost uh, in the course of a strike. That sounds sort of like the end of unions, which in fact some of our friends have argued is implied in this decision, because of course the whole point of strikes is to inflict economic damage on employers. But it turns out the Supreme Court decision was actually a lot narrower than that. Please tell us about the striking cement truck drivers of Tukwila, Washington. These are drivers who, as the court said, is their right, went on strike. They remember the Teamsters. Teamsters, yes. They they didn't give their employer uh, advance notice that they were going on strike, which is you know again certainly protected. Uh, no one contested that. And you know the court had previously ruled that uh, milk truck drivers, if they you know went on strike and the milk spoiled, well that was the employer would just have to live with that, you know. But now here. The uh, company said, well, but we suffered a particular economic damage because the drivers were out there with their cement mixers mixing, but they didn't deliver it and they returned it to the yard and that could have damaged the trucks, except that uh, the drivers, A, did return the trucks, B, they kept them mixing so the cement wouldn't harden. Uh, it, and so really what the uh, employer's uh, case came down to was, well, we, the supervisors, had to empty out the uh, cement and pour it and uh, some of it hardened before we could use it again. You think this is something like the spoiled milk in the dairy trucks? Well, you know, the, the court didn't quite make a, a clear line between what differentiates uh, hardened uh, cement and spoiled milk. I mean, the cement weighed more, but if that was the basis, <laughs> they, they needed to, you know, give us a, a cutoff weight. The Supreme Court usually doesn't deal with this kind of issue. What's the difference between spoiled milk and spoiled concrete, isn't it? Yeah, I thought yeah. they dealt I, with they, the Constitution of the United States. Yes, that is correct. And various critics of the uh, decision noted that, you know, a lot of the decision read like this was a county uh, superior court judge, you know, just weighing the uh, evidence of the case, which is not what a Supreme Court does. However, I think the key to understanding all of this is the fact that two staunch supporters of unions also joined the majority on this, uh, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. And what that suggests is that what they were really fearful of was that the court would reverse a previous decision 
that had said, unless there's deliberate wanton damage of employer's property, you can't hold a union liable. And the decision, in fact, did not say that. And it dwelled so specifically on this set of events that uh, I I think uh, that was something that uh, Kagan and Sotomayor insisted on. So it couldn't be cited as a precedent for uh, going after the law itself, which makes clear you cannot hold unions responsible for incurring costs to the employer, because that, after all, is the whole point of a strike, and a strike is protected under the National Labor Relations Act. So I, I think if you you know dig deep enough into the weeds, that explains how the court delivered what was in many ways just kind of a weird uh, decision. And uh, the, the majority opinion was written by Amy Coney Barrett. It was, but then there was a concurrence from Thomas and Gorsuch, which said we should revisit you know, this, uh, it's called the Gorman decision from 1959, which made it clear that uh, you can't hold the union responsible for employer financial losses. And they said, well, you know, let's uh, let's do that. But nothing in Coney Barrett's decision, which Sotomayor and uh, Kagan signed on to, actually called that into question. Well, we're just about out of time here. I did want to get your reaction to the announcement by Cornell West that he is running for president on the People's Party ticket. People's Party ticket, I understand, is a split from the Bernie Sanders campaign that Bernie Sanders does not support. Uh, they're only on the ballot in three states. Uh, is, is the prospect going to take a stand on Cornell West's presidential campaign? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, we'll take a stand, and we're against it. I mean, we don't actually endorse. We were 501c3, but this is uh, holds a potential. Even though it's so small, it it, it can't in- inflict the kind of damage that Nader did running as an independent in 2000, which helped lead to the election of George W. Bush instead of Al Gore. Uh, it, it's more like the Jill Stein effort, if if it even raises to that level. But even Jill Stein got uh, uh, more votes running as a green than was the margin of victory for Trump in 2016 in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Cornell says lots of great things, and I don't dispute that, and I don't think you would dispute that, but his political judgment seems to have completely left him. Either that, or he, at some level, he's, uh, you know, looking for another uh, uh, Trump uh, presidency, which I don't think he is. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John, and it's always good to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics thinking about the left. Shasta County, California, north of San Francisco, is a pretty place, but right-wing extremists have taken over the Board of Supervisors and some local school boards there. They've driven out public health workers and pushed to make the county what they call a Second Amendment sanctuary, and they're calling it a blueprint for the rest of the nation. Sasha Abramsky has been spending time in Shasta County to understand what happened there and what it means for the rest of us. Sasha, of course, writes regularly for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, 
The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. And his new report in The Nation is titled The Takeover of Shasta County. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm good. Great to have you. You open your report with a member of the county supervisors who narrowly survived a recall effort last year, Mary Rickert. You say the right calls her a communist. Is she a communist? <laughs> no, Mary Rickert is someone who voted for Donald Trump twice. She's she's a rancher. She has three ranches um, that she shares with her husband and they're dotted around Shasta County. She's self-defined conservative. She owns guns. She um, voted for Trump, though wouldn't vote for him again. She is as far from a communist as you could possibly get. She's called a communist and she's called a rhino, a Republican in name only, mainly because she wanted to abide by public health mandates during the COVID crisis when the rest of the, um, or much of the rest of the county and certainly these insurgent right-wing movements wanted basically to go to war with Sacramento over COVID restrictions. Um, but no, despite the hate mail, despite <laughs> the death threats, despite everything that comes her way, <laughs> she's not a communist. The biggest town in Shasta County is Redding. You've spent a lot of time there lately. What's Redding like? It's actually a very lovely town. Um, if you drive north on the I-5, it's the last city of any substance before you get to the Oregon border. So you drive up, the Central Valley, you see all the orchards in bloom. You get to Reading, it's a town of about 90,000 people. And off to the northeast, you've got Mount Shasta, which is this just epic mountain about um, 80 miles north of Reading. It's got a cutesy downtown. It's got some lovely restaurants. It's always been a very conservative town, and it's now become more conservative. But the town itself, you know, it's very pleasant to walk around, have a nice meal in. You visited a barber shop in a tiny town outside of Reading called Cottonwood. Tell us about that. There's a barber there called Woody Clendenin, and he's kind of a character. He set up in the Obama presidency what was called the Cottonwood Militia. And he says it's a branch of the statewide militia. I'm not sure whether they're formal membership ties, but it's a group of men and women who basically train in um, military tactics and train in the usage of guns and so on. Um, Clendenin himself refused to close his barbershop throughout the pandemic. He ran this pandemic. Um, he, ra he ran this barbershop. Um, with a sort of increasing sense that it was a counter community, that people would go there if they didn't like mask mandates or they didn't like lockdowns or they didn't like the direction that Sacramento was going in. And so his walls are plastered with right wing political slogans. There are guns hanging on the walls. Uh, there are various insults to liberals, to individuals and to political and to politicians. Um, but Clendenin himself, you know, I went in there several times and I talked to him at length. And he's a deeply, deeply conservative individual. Um, on the other hand, he was very generous with his time. You know, I sat with him. He knew who I was. He knew I was a reporter. We sat for several hours twice and, um, you know, told me his worldview. And his worldview is very, very different from my worldview. You want to tell us about the price list for haircuts at this place? Yeah, this was sort of amusing. It was, you know, it was this series of prices. You know, Clendenin basically gives buzz cuts. I think he may do other things, but it's mainly, you know, a razor. Um, and he had this price list and it was, I think, 11 or $12 for veterans and $15 for a family deal. You know, he had all these things, $100 for liberals, 105 or whatever it was for vaccinated people. Um, I may have the numbers a bit wrong, but that was the gist of it. <laughs> It's his worldview that's now governing Shasta. 
In the 2016 election, Donald Trump carried Shasta County, winning 64%, but that was not very different from hundreds of other rural counties all across the country, and it didn't lead to a far-right takeover of those counties. So Trump's election doesn't seem to have been the turning point for Shasta County. What was? Well, everyone I talked to, left wing, right wing, people who liked what was happening, people who hated what was happening, everyone who I talked to said the turning point was COVID. So Trump sort of softens up the political process. He coarsens it. He, um, you know, brings in a sort of authoritarian voice. Social media exacerbates that because of the echo chamber and the fact that people sort of hide behind anonymity and think it's okay to cast around threats online. But the thing that really coalesces these movements in Shasta was lockdowns and the fact that there was this impression that there was a one-size-fits-all solution being imposed on these very rural counties by Gavin Newsom's administration in Sacramento. And it triggers this enormous backlash. So you have the lockdown of businesses, you have the mask mandates, you have schools shutting down, and suddenly you have hundreds of people turning up unmasked, unsocially distanced, at these border supervisor meetings, the border supervisors for the first few months of the pandemic was in person. And then eventually, as the numbers started spiking, it went online. So you had this sort of surreal situation where you'd have the border supervisors in person sort of cordoned off. They were all sort of separated off with plexiglass. They had uh, masks on. They were socially distanced. And then on the other side of the plexiglass, you had this sort of unsocially spaced, unmasked, flamboyantly non-conforming with the rules around COVID group of conservatives. And they would turn up at every meeting and they would brag and they would heckle and they would threaten and they would make these sort of blood curdling speeches about, you know, armed insurrection. And over the course of a year or two, that movement got more and more and more right wing. And it got more and more outraged by any kind of COVID restriction and any kind of public health restriction or any kind of public health mandate or any kind of public health recommendation. There are some liberals in Shasta County. What did they do in response to all this crazy yeah, there, there are stuff? A lot of liberals. I mean, if, if you think that about two thirds of the population voted for Trump, well, it's a population of 180,000 people. So that means, you know, about one third of Shasta County doesn't in any way, shape or form sympathize with this. They're organizing. There, there, there are some really interesting journalists up there, a woman called Donnie Chamberlain, who runs this online news site called A News Cafe, and several others. They're organizing, they're monitoring, they're publicizing what's going on. Uh, there's a website called Shasta, I think it's called Shasta County, Thought You Should Know, or Thought You Should Know Shasta County. And it monitors hate mail, it monitors you know, some of the postings on social media, some of the rants on talk radio and so on. And in actual fact, one of the four very, very conservative Board of Supervisors members at the moment is himself facing a recall. The peak of the COVID lockdown, spring and summer 2020, that was also the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests nationally. Things got pretty scary in Shasta County. In Shasta, you had a lot of armed, essentially vigilantes, militia members, bikers and others who basically took to the streets with weapons to patrol against the possibility that Black Lives Matters protesters would come in and cause havoc. And there were some Black Lives Matters protests. They weren't very large and they weren't destructive, but there were some Black Lives Matters protests in Reading and elsewhere. They were met with armed groups of individuals who basically were telling them, you better get out of town if you know what's good for you. Okay, back to COVID. If you didn't get vaccinated, 
you were much more likely to die from COVID. What was the death rate from COVID in Shasta County and how did it compare with uh, the rest of the state? Even though Shasta is a small, sparsely populated county, its death rate per 100,000 or per 10,000 was actually significantly higher than the statewide death rate. So, you know, the numbers sort of camouflage it a bit because they're a bit dry. But what they basically break down to is three people in Shasta County died for every two people of a similar sized population within California. So that's a significant difference. Yeah. We haven't said much about Trump. Of course, Trump lost the election in November 2020. He got only 34% of the vote in California. He did get 65% in Shasta County. What was the reaction of his supporters in Shasta County in November 2020? More, more people voted for Trump. A higher percentage voted for Trump in Shasta in 2020 than in 2016, which tells you something about the direction that Shasta was going. And after Trump lost the election, over the next year and a half, two years, it doubled down on this idea that the election had been stolen, that there had been this sort of organized stab in the back by bureaucracies intent on sabotaging Trump. And one of the ways that this newly empowered hard right board of supervisors has manifested its power is it banned Dominion voting machines. Well, it's the only county in the country, as far as I know, which actually sort of literally banned Dominion voting with no other mechanism to vote in place. You can't you can't count votes by hand only in California. It's too complicated. There are too many things on the ballot and there are state rules against it. You have to have at least a partial machine backup. So Dominion is now no longer part of the equation in Shasta. Uh, the problem with that is it's going to cost them millions and millions of dollars to try and get some kind of other ad hoc system in place in time for the bunch of elections next year, the primaries, the general and so on. And if you talk to some of these hard right individuals in Shasta, and I spent a lot of time talking to the hard right one after another after another, they'll tell you that January 6th was a false flag operation or that January 6th wasn't a riot at all. It was just democratic freedom of expression or that the police let them into the Capitol or that Nancy Pelosi let them into the Capitol. <laughs> the one person who didn't have anything to do with it was Donald J. Trump. <laughs> a little more than a year after Trump lost the election, the far right got a recall election for the county supervisors in Shasta County, which was held on February 1st, 2022. What was the campaign like? The campaign itself was very vitriolic. I mean, you, you had stuff on social media that was just extremely offensive and extremely threatening. It was also funded in part, not wholly, but in part by this very right-wing billionaire out of Connecticut, guy called Revert Anselmo. And Anselmo had a personal beef with the Shasta Board of Supervisors because he'd opened a vineyard, he'd opened it without proper permitting. He'd built certain things on the vineyard, a chapel and a few other things. And the County Board of Supervisors had basically said he had to shut it down. And he did shut it down, but he sort of bore a grudge. And so when the opportunity arose, he decided that he would fund to the tune of many hundreds of thousands of dollars this recall campaign against three of the Board of Supervisors members. And he did. And it gave this right wing group the momentum to gather signatures, to put out adverts, to launch a pretty sophisticated social media campaign. Um, um, in the end, only one of the three got recalled, a man called Leonard Moti. And he'd been the police chief in Reading. He'd been on the Board of Supervisors for quite a while. He was currently chair of the Board of Supervisors. And he was particularly hated by the conservatives because of things like pushing the um, Board of Supervisors meetings into a virtual format. And then 
when there were in-person formats, putting in place all these protections and the plexiglasses and only letting certain numbers of people in to give public comment and limiting the time they could give public comment. And he became a sort of target, not just in Shasta, but globally for the anti-lockdown anti, um, movement. And so Moti was getting hate mail and you know death threats from pretty much all over the world. When the election actually happened, he was the one who got recalled. The other two narrowly survived the recall, but I think 56% of the voters in his district voted to recall him. So he's replaced by this guy called Tim Garman, who's pretty right-wing, though not as right-wing as some of the other members who ended up coming in afterwards. And the board shifts to the right, and it starts embracing these you know, really hardline positions against mask mandates, against public health, against the elections infrastructure, against anybody who would propose cooperating with Sacramento on Sacramento's gun control laws. And it just spirals and it's still spiraling. So here we are in you know the middle of 2023 and we're in the middle of the aftermath of that recall election. There's also talk about secession from the state of California. It's called the State of Jefferson Movement. There's nothing unique to Shasta County around that. Most Northern California counties, the sparsely populated, the conservative counties that feel like they're underrepresented in liberal California, most of them have in the last several years expressed support for some kind of secessionist movement. It's aspirational. It doesn't mean that you know tomorrow you're going to end up with counties seceding. It means they have these non-binding votes or they have non-binding referenda and a majority come out in favor of joining this non-existent state called Jefferson. Um, in their mind's eye, the way it would look is you'd have a series of conservative counties from northern California, northern and eastern California, seceding along with a series of counties from eastern Oregon and possibly from northern Nevada. And they would join this mega state that either would be part of Idaho or would sort of replicate what Idaho was like politically. It's not going to happen. It's, you know, again, it's this sort of symbol politics. But yes, many of the new board of supervisors have expressed sympathy with this notion of Jeffersonia, of the state of Jefferson, because they're so marginalized within state politics in California. So what do we make of all this? You quote a 74-year-old libertarian-leaning military veteran who ran the local talk radio station. He told you that hotheads have always come and gone in American politics, that COVID and Trump magnified all of the community's divides and made people angrier and coarser and cruder, but things eventually would quiet down again. That's just the way it works in American politics. You quote him saying, in the long run, things will settle down again. They always do, close quote. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, I didn't really. And this 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 man was called Carl Bott, and he was quite conservative. But I thought he was, you know, a very decent human being, and I I enjoyed, you know, he spent a lot of time talking with me. I enjoyed the conversations with him. I thought he was a very humane individual. He ran this radio station that certainly was right wing, and certainly hosted some at times extremely unsavory individuals. Um, but I think he himself really did. I don't think it was a facade. I think he himself kind of yearned for a calmer, more genteel politics. Um, but do I think he's right that things calm down in the end? Yeah, if you go years and years and years down the road, it's entirely possible that people will look back at the period from 2020 to 2023 and think, oh, you know, my God, what were we thinking? This was so extreme. It was so irrational. But the long term is a long way away. I mean, is it possible, though, that in between now and then there'll be a whole bunch of chaos and a whole bunch of people getting hurt? 
by what's happening in Shasta right now. And you suggest in the nation that maybe the right-wing takeover of Shasta County could have been avoided if Governor Gavin Newsom had handled the COVID mandates differently. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, right from the get-go, I I understood the need for the mandates. I understood the need for doing things in a different way in the face of an unprecedented public health emergency. I didn't think that everything Gavin Newsom did was particularly sensible. I didn't think it at the beginning of the pandemic, and I still don't think it. I didn't think shutting down schools for you know the prolonged period of time made any sense at all. I thought the damage it did to children was horrendous, and I thought that there ought to have been flexibility to put in place the kind of thing we did in the 1919 Spanish flu pandemic when schools around the country hosted classes out in the open. They took over parks. They took over... Um, school playgrounds they took over parking lots you know if there's a will there's a way um but i do think more generally there ought to have been more flexibility between how you respond to a public health crisis like this in a crowded densely populated urban environment like la or you know oakland or san francisco or sacramento and how you respond to a crisis like that in a sparsely populated rural area I think basically allowed people who were already suspicious of it and already suspicious of the idea of government and already suspicious of the idea of expertise. It gave them a foothold and allowed them to peddle a lot of conspiracy theories and to gain traction doing so. One last thing. What was it like for you to be up there in Chasta talking to these violent, armed, far right wing people? I'm sure they know that you support uh, public health and Black Lives Matter and gay rights. You don't really look like a Christian nationalist. You weren't armed. Uh, how did you go over up there? Early in the Trump presidency, I'd done a lot of reporting um, in, the, in the primary season. And then Trump got elected. And I psychologically just, I just, it made me feel so ill. And um, I didn't want to spend all my time trying to understand the hows and the whys of people voted for Trump. I knew, I knew it was something that just made me feel dirty. But, you know, with a bit more distance, I, you know, I, I do think it's fascinating to get inside other people's heads and to see what's motivating them and to tell their stories. And so I went up to Shasta and I was very upfront with people. You know, I, I didn't, didn't say, hey, I'm writing for a really right-wing magazine. Why don't you talk to me? I said, I'm writing for The Nation magazine. I assume, you know, people people have access to the internet. They can Google. I said, I'm writing for The Nation magazine. I, I told some of them I didn't agree with what they were saying, and that, but I wanted to hear their stories. You know, I, explain this to me. And one of the things that's really depressed me about the last few years is there's been this inability to accept the fact of plurality in this country. And, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. And, and the result is people are sort of siloing. And democracy doesn't really work when everybody silos. You, you've got to have an ability to, you know, talk to each other and to have interplay in some ways. And, um, you know, I think as a journalist, it makes your story more powerful if you can hear the voices of different people. Sasha Abramsky wrote about the far-right takeover of Shasta County for The Nation. You can read his piece at thenation.com. It's in-depth, long-form reporting at its best. Sasha, thanks for going to Shasta County, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, John. Thanks so much.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now, from the archives, one of my favorite interviews, Isabel Wilkerson, talking about her unforgettable award-winning book about the great migration of black people out of the American South in the 20th century. It's called The Warmth of Other Suns. We spoke with her in September 2010. Isabel Wilkerson, in your book, The Warmth of Other Suns, you, you talk not only about leaving the South, but of, of life in the North. What, what was life like in Chicago? Was it the promised land? It was very difficult, particularly in the beginning during the Great Depression. And black women had a really hard time because uh, men in general, immigrant or otherwise, were much needed because you had foundries, you had steel mills, you had slaughterhouses, which where a strong back was required and valued, especially if you didn't have much education. And she did not. She had you know, grown up in the countryside of, of Mississippi. But the women had a hard time. And the only thing they could hope to do was become domestics. But they're actually, during the Depression, was very little work for them. And so they ended up, she ended there ended up being these markets. They were actually called them slave markets in which black women would gather on a corner and wait for um, a well-to-do, well-to-do white housewives to come and pick oh. among them. And they actually started bidding wars among themselves. So they were bidding down the price oh. that they might get. That's the story, one of the stories in this book. <laughs> Ida Mae Gladney's story of the Mississippi to Chicago uh, migration. There's also the Louisiana to Los Angeles migration, and that you tell through the story of a man named Robert Forster who left Louisiana in 1953. An amazing person. For starters, he didn't take the train. He drove in a Buick. He drove in a Buick across the desert, and it ended up being a little more treacherous than he had anticipated because he thought that uh, he would be able to find a place to rest after he got out of Texas, and it turned out that in 1953, uh, Jim Crow, as we know, the the the, you know, the uh, system of segregation actually extended beyond the borders of what he thought was the South, and it was a, it was a shocking and surprising thing to him, and a dispiriting thing. And yet he had gone too far from his home in order to turn back. He was leaving Monroe, Louisiana, because he had served in the army as a surgeon. But when he got out of the army, it turned out he could not practice in his own hometown of Monroe. Louisiana. So he set out for California, which had always been a dream, and he wanted to uh, to come out here. But it turned out that he could he had to drive from multiple states without stopping because he could not find a place to stop to rest. And and how did it happen that Robert Forster got to be a surgeon in Louisiana? Uh, in the late 40s. He didn't become a surgeon in Louisiana. He became a surgeon by going to the one black uh, medical school, which happened to be Meharry Medical School, that happened to be in Tennessee. So he did not become a surgeon there. He had to go outside of his own state for that to the slightly more progressive state of Tennessee, where there was a, a historically black college known as Meharry that had been that had gone had a history going back to uh, Reconstruction. And that's where he went. And then he went into the army. 
So then he went into the army, and then uh, he was able to perform. There are some fascinating stories about the problems that he had in the army. But but once he got out, he decided he wanted to bring. He had a family by then, but they had been separated for much of the time as he was pursuing his medical degree, and he wanted to bring the whole family together. And he set out on a course for uh, California on his own, which is very typical of the Great Migration and of also immigrant men. He often set out first and then scout out the new world, get situated, and then call for the family. Mm-hmm. But he had such a hard time. I attempted, actually, in the course of doing the research, to recreate his journey. I rented a Buick. Wow. Had my parents <laughs> with me who were by then retired and all. And they were migrants. They had migrated mm-hmm. from the South, too. So they were always ready for an adventure. And we found ourselves. I tried, I tried to follow it to the letter based upon his description of what he had done. And when we got to the stretch where he needed to drive without being able to stop, um, I began to. Ex- I wanted to experience what he did. How the fingers begin to swell and they begin to ache, and the eyes begin to get, mm. eyelids get heavy. And th- by this time, it was darkness in the desert, and the mm. mountains came, and you had this hair, these hairpin turns. And at a certain point, my parents said, "We must stop the car. You're not going to let us drive." They wanted so much to drive. I said, "No, I must do the driving myself." He did it himself, and I've got to do it. And my parents said, "No, for all of our sakes, stop." So we only made it to Yuma, Arizona, where, of course, because life, uh, because the world has changed so much, look how far we've come as a country. We had no trouble, my parents and I, finding a place to rest. But he did not have it so easy in 1953. He did not have it so easy. Robert Forster eventually went back to Louisiana. Tell us that story. Yeah, he had to go back. Generally, some people never went back, we should say. Some people never went back until unless uh, generally mo- their mother died. Essentially, that was what brought some people back. He had to go back also for funerals. And one time when he went back, um, he decided to stop in at a uh, restaurant that he had not been able to go to when he was growing up in Monroe, Louisiana. This was now by now the 70s and things had changed and things had opened up. And he was he was surprised and underwhelmed by the ver- by the mundane nature of the place th- of this restaurant that he'd gone to. I mean, by this time he'd lived in LA and he'd gone to some of the finest restaurants here. So mm-hmm. he was accustomed to just wonderful wonderful high-end glamorous places. And he went back to this restaurant and he was thinking to himself essentially, is this what they were keeping us from? Because it was so very mundane, which shows you how 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 um small the people were thinking when they tried to keep the races separate and how sad and tragic it was for everyone because some of these people might have been the best of friends but they would never get to know it because they were so separated that way so he found it quite under underwhelming and then in an odd kind of way he he was healed because is this all that there was is this all that there was yeah um i understand you brought your own mother back to georgia uh long after she had left and what what was that like for for her and for you well actually at first she i mean kicking and screaming i mean absolutely mm. didn't <laughs> she kicking and screaming and not wanting to to go back I needed to be in the South at a certain point for the writing because I needed to really truly understand what they left. They left a beautiful land. I mean, you must acknowledge the beauty of the land, the lushness of the land. They left kin and, you know, uh, relatives in the land of their birth. And so they gave up a lot and sacrificed a lot, as would as would any immigrant. You, you, you come to realize what the forebears have given up in order for all of us, so many of us, to have a life here in America, a great country. 
And and so I needed to do that. But she went back kicking and screaming and did not want to be there. I also took her to the um, the to um, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, where she growing up could only go through the side door. And she had the same reaction as Dr. Foster did. Hmm. It was, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, got all of the, the bells and whistles of one of those, uh, you know, 1920s theaters. But after all those years, and after what she'd experienced being in Washington, D.C. with the great monuments and all in the White House and the Capitol and, the, and all of that, she too said, is this what they were trying to keep us from? Amazing. Uh, I just wanted to close by asking you to read the, um, the passage from which your title comes from uh, Richard Wright. Yes, Richard Wright was one of the great novelists of the 20th century. He was also someone who migrated from the South, from Mississippi to Chicago. And when he wrote this, in some ways, it's a message to anyone who ever has to leave one place that they, the place they've only known for a new place, a new life that they're setting out for. And it reads, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. Isabel Wilkerson, her wonderful new book is The Warmth of Other Suns. Isabel Wilkerson, thanks for your book and thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We spoke with Isabel Wilkerson about The Warmth of Other Suns in September 2010. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm-hmm.